Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what a sight to see God take on at that time the greatest army in civilization, the Egyptians. All the plagues and everything else and then crossing through the Red Sea and seeing it swallow up Pharaoh's army when he tried to follow behind. Was that good enough for the people of Israel? No. Like you and I, they were sinners and they got out to the desert and they grumbled and they whined and they complained. There's no food. There's no water. God gave them water miraculously. God gave them food every morning in that bread they called manna, which in Hebrew means, what's this? But he gave them the food they needed. Was that good enough? Nope. Time and time again, they whined against the Lord. And when they complained and God sent the fiery serpents to bite them, don't kid yourself. Their complaining was a rejection of God. It was an unbelief, period, flat out. They repented under the Lord's discipline. Did God tell Moses, ah, it's okay, uh, we'll just heal him and we'll go on? No. He told Moses to fashion a snake, put it up on a pole. And if they were bit, they would have to look at it in order to be healed. Now, it's God who was the one who healed them. And I'm going to tell you later on under Hezekiah, one of the, one of the last of the believing kings, the people, uh, the Jewish people had started to worship that snake. So it was like 500 years later and Hezekiah has to have it destroyed. But at that time, so we got to be careful how we understand that snake. God was teaching them to obey him. They, he had taught them, if you get bit, then you obey, because they'd be bit for an act of disobedience and rejection of God. And the obedience was to look at that snake. Now, that doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, if I got a, a serious medical problem, going out and staring at something isn't going to heal me. Medication, surgery, but not just staring at something. See, that was training them and disciplining them. Scripture often refers to faith as obedience, but it's an obedience that God puts in our heart after God has saved us. And that comes clear in our gospel lesson today where Jesus points out that as Moses lifted up the snake, the people had to look to that to be saved. Well, if you want to be saved from your sin and damnation, you have to look at Christ both on the cross and Christ off the cross. And that's an obedience that God creates in our hearts so that we trust that Jesus has done all the work for our salvation. That is elaborated in a different way today in our sermon text, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. But God, because he's rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in trespasses. It is by grace you have been saved. He also raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He did this so that in the coming ages he might demonstrate the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance so that we would walk in them. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when I have catechism students memorize Bible passages, clearly John 3.16 is one of them. But our sermon text, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, are also on the very top priority that I want to make sure those kids memorize. And there's a reason for that. 
Today in this text we see you are alive together with Christ. We see what that means and, and, and how that comes about and the importance of that. So the apostle begins here, yet God who continues being rich in mercy. See, you pick the richest man in the world and if, you, if he keeps spending all of his money, he's going to eventually run out of money. But God continues being rich in his mercy, brothers and sisters in Christ. He's never going to run out of mercy. And what is mercy? Mercy is when you look at somebody who's in a situation that they can't help themselves. They're stuck in it. And you're willing to help because you can. An example of mercy here in Wyoming. When you see that soccer mom with the minivans that slid off the road and is stuck in that snow drift. And you happen to have a tow rope and are able to yank her right out. Even though it's an inconvenience to your time. That's mercy. You were able to help where she needed help and was unable to help herself. If she's stuck, she's not getting out on her own. And why does God help us? We were stuck. And what were we stuck in? We'd been bit by the serpent, the devil. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. We are damned to hell. And on our own, all we can do is dig ourselves a deeper pit into the flames of hell. But he gave us mercy, not just because he's a nice God, but we're told on account of his great love, which he loved us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, have you ever come across like roadkill there on the side of the road? Maybe when we do our highway cleanup, especially if that's like a skunk that's been sitting out there rotting in the sun, baking away. The stench is terrible. Why would God come to you and I who stink of the rot of our decay, which is sin and make us alive? Because he's merciful, because he loves us who are so unlovable. And if you think that you are more lovable than your neighbor, you're only fooling yourself. We all have the stench and rot of the decay of sin in God's nostrils. And so it is simply out of his love that he has come to us. And so we're told in verse five, even while we ourselves were dead in respect to our trespass, made us alive together with Christ. And there it is. And the Greek verb made us alive together with, and he adds that word Christ. That is the mystical union. We are talking about the life of your new man. And that new man is faith. It's all there in a package deal. God works through that message that Jesus died for your sins and he rose for your sins. And the Holy Spirit enters your heart and he gives you faith that yes, when you want to be saved, when you want eternal life, when you want your sins removed... You look to the cross of Christ, both him on it and off of it. And in doing so, because of that faith, you are connected to Christ. You've heard me talk about the mystical union before. It's mystical because it defies human logic and understanding, and yet it's very real. You can't feel it, you can't see it, but your new man is alive and is connected in Christ. You are alive with Christ because you have a new man, and the proof of that is that you trust that Jesus has done all the work for your salvation. Now, a lot of Christian churches agree, yes, you are saved by grace through faith, but then they add, there's at least one little work you've got to do, if not a truckload of works you've got to do. And one of the most common works that most Christian churches here in America add is the work of decision theology. You have to give your heart to Jesus. You have to make your decision for Jesus. But did you catch that? Even while we ourselves were dead in respect to our trespasses, yes, your, uh, your lungs were taking in oxygen, you physically were alive, but you didn't have a new man. You were dead. Now, 
Try a medical experiment if you have a chance. Set a defibrillator. We got one right there. I'm sure you could borrow it for a few minutes if you need to. You could set that next to somebody who's had a heart attack and is laying there dead. And say, you're dead. Grab the defibrillator and hook it up. What are they going to do? They're dead. They're going to lay there. They need somebody else to give them the CPR and the chest compressions. They're just going to lie there. And especially a corpse that's been dead for a while. Now it's over, right? And spiritually, that's what's going on. You can't make a decision for Christ. You're dead. You can't give your heart to Christ. You're dead. And the Holy Spirit comes through the good news that Jesus has died for you and he makes you alive. He connects you with Christ. So be careful. Don't buy into that work. God did all the work of giving you faith, of giving you the new man, of making you alive in him and connecting you to Christ. The Apostle Paul stops right there and inserts a parenthetical remark that he's going to come back to because it's so important. By grace, you continue having been saved. And I translate the Greek tenses very literally there. By grace, you continue having been saved. You were dead. God made you alive. That's an accomplished fact. And you continue in there. And that was by God's grace. A gift received at Christ's expense. He paid for it on the cross. But he continues keeping you alive. And so we see you are alive together with Christ by grace. By God's generous gift to you, period. If you add one little work to it, okay, so you say God made you alive, but you just got to, you yourself have just got to say, now I'm committed to you, God, and give your heart to him. It's no longer a gift. If I give you something after you've earned it, it's really wages received for work given. But we were dead. We've been made alive together with Christ. And in verse 6 he says, and he raised us up with Christ. Now, that is said in the past tense. It is said in the Greek as an accomplished fact. 2,000 years ago Christ rose. When God brought you to faith, he raised you with Christ. Christ's resurrection is your resurrection. Now, we don't want to get confused. God is going to raise your body up because Christ rose from the grave. That's a confidence you have but it's because he's already raised you up. This is the birth of the new man. The person, when you're in our sinful nature, we were dead in sin. We still have that deadness of that sinful nature, but we now have the new man who's been raised up with Christ, is intimately connected with Christ, lives with Christ, as John says, as a branch is to the vine. You're connected to Christ. So far we see you're alive together with Christ by grace. This is all God's work because we were dead. We couldn't connect ourselves to Christ. We couldn't raise ourselves. And God has done all that work. God did all the work to remove your sin on the cross. But then he says something that a lot of theologians miss. And it's a really neat thing. They misunderstand it. So in verse 6 he already said, And he raised us up with Christ. And he says, And he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that is also past tense. And too often when you read commentaries and stuff like that, they say, well, God's saying he's going to sit you with Christ on judgment day. And he is. You will get a glorified body. You will be in the new heavens and the new earth. But just like the other two statements, it's past tense. You're already seated with Christ, your new man. You don't see that, but you're connected intimately with Christ. Where he's sitting on his throne, your new man connected to him is sitting on the throne with Christ. 
What does that mean for you? Christ sitting on his throne is his position of authority in which he rules over all creation for you. So for you, a major comfort, you're connected to Christ who's on the throne and he's ruling over all creation for you. So you can be confident whatever happens in this life, God is using it for your good and he's all-knowing. Even discipline is used for our good. But there's something else we can miss here. If you're seated with him, you have authority. Christ breathed on his disciples after he rose and told them all authority on the heavens and earth has been given to him and he gave them the binding and the loosing keys. You have all the authority of God. When you see a brother or sister in Christ who is stuck in a sin and they're not repenting of it, they refuse to repent of it. And we've got to add here the qualifier. It does have to be a sin. When you announce to them that their sin is now locked to them, you have just locked the gates of heaven and unlocked the gates of hell until they repent of their sin. You have that authority. That one's not such the fun key to use, is it? But it's like having to give a child medicine that they can't stand or a shot with a needle that long that you know is going to make them feel better. It's much funner to get to use the other key and it's also comforting to know you have this much authority as well. When you announce to somebody that in Christ their sins are forgiven, it's as good as Christ saying it himself. You've just locked the gates of hell. You've flung open the gates of heaven. You've just drenched them with the blood of Christ and their sin is gone. And don't kid yourself, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not just in matters of sin and, and forgiveness that you have authority. God has given you tremendous freedom in your life. You could have chose to sleep in this morning, couldn't you? But you took authority over your sinful nature and said, I'm going to go hear the word of my God and find rest in it. God gives you permission according to the circumstances he gives you in life to be a steward over the things he's given you. You have a lot of authority. It's very important to recognize you are alive together with Christ and that comes by grace. But that means you have authority both to use the keys and to be stewards over the things God has entrusted with you because your new man connected to Christ is right there before the throne of God. And yes, when Christ returns, you will be ever before his throne in the new heavens and the new earth with your glorified body. But he continues with that. He says all this, this being made alive, raised up, being seated with Christ, he says, only within the boundaries of Christ. Once again, the Apostle Paul healed by saying it that way, in Christ, only within those boundaries, says, not by your works, not by your charming personality and wonderful sense of humor, not that you were such a great little lamb that God just couldn't help but to love you. You don't get this authority because you think you're smarter than God. It only comes in Christ. It only comes because you have been connected to Christ. It only comes because of Christ's death and resurrection and his sending his Holy Spirit in you. You take Christ out of the picture and it's gone. And that's the scary thing. This is why the Lutheran church, standing on the clear word of God, will oppose any kind, any kind of work righteousness. Even, well, you just got to be sorry for your sins and then God will forgive you. No, God forgave you of your sins and made you alive while you were still dead before you could even repent of them. And yes, then he makes a repentance come into us afterwards because we are alive in Christ. So be very, very careful because it only comes within Christ, not within the things you and I do. It's all encompassed by Christ, always looking at that cross with the obedience of faith. So he continues on. 
He did all this so that in the ages, specifically those which are coming, he would demonstrate the extraordinary riches of his grace in kindness upon us, only within the boundaries of Christ Jesus. Now we finally get into the future. And it's neat how the Apostle Paul, under inspiration, writes this. When Christ does return, when we're in all eternity before God, he views us like one age after the other, just rolling out. Like if you ever watch the sections of an escalator, they just keep coming in perpetuity. God's never going to run out of his grace. And he says, when you're, in, when you're in the new heavens and the new earth with him, he's just going to pour it out even more on you. But once again, that only comes within the boundaries of Christ. If you think like the Catholic Church was teaching during the Reformation that a certain amount of penance is going to get you there, or that you can do it by your own works and stuff, you've just stepped outside the boundaries of Christ and you lose it all. Just one little step outside, boom, you lose it all. It's got to be that you look completely to God and God gives you that faith. So he says, once again, in fact, you guys continue having been saved by his grace through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is God's gift. And I already told you this is one of the most important passages of the Bible. You guys continue having been saved. You were saved and you continue having that. And that's God's gift to you. You're here this morning to hear the word of God because God put that desire in your heart because your sinful nature didn't want to hear the word of God. It's boring. It's death to the sinful nature, but it's life-giving water to your new man who's connected to Christ and your new man loves to sip that water in while your sinful nature is trying to stick his hands into the ears of your new man. It's and he says, through faith and this not from yourself. Nothing comes from you. The Apostle Paul has already said that time and time again within the boundaries of Christ, but this time he spells it out, it's God's gift. Once again, if I give you a gift and you say, hey, thank you, and you give me a 20 for it, you've just paid for the gift. It stopped being a gift. Your salvation is a gift. The faith that makes that salvation yours, which the scripture also refers to as the obedience, is a gift from God. He does that. And if you want a stronger faith, don't buy into the garbage you hear about all the things you've got to do. God does that to you through his word. It's his gift. Come to the word. God will strengthen your faith. And really what people talk about having a stronger faith is being to apply your trust in God when at, in times when it seems like God is, is working against you. And so all of this so far, you have that authority even to rule over your sinful nature because Christ is seated on his throne and you're connected to, that, to tell that sinful nature, you're yammering on and I can't get you to be quiet, but I can tell you you're wrong and I'm done listening to you. So far we see you're alive together with Christ, clearly by grace, and that gives you authority not only to use the keys on brothers and sisters in Christ, in stewardship, and even over your own sinful nature. But what about works? When Martin Luther discovered this in the Bible, one of the things his accusers always said on both sides was, you've cheapened grace. Now people have no reason to do works. That's addressed here too. Verse 9. It's not from works so that no one may brag. Period. Your salvation, your faith doesn't come from something you do. That's completely God's work and gift to you. But what do we do with good works? Then he says, for we are God's workmanship who are created within the boundaries of Jesus Christ for the purpose of good works. The Greek word used there for workmanship is the same word like if an artist turns around and carves something and it's something beautiful and it shows their craftsmanship. 
God has created you. He created your body and he created your soul, your new life in Christ by connecting it to Christ. And he's done that for a purpose. It is for good works. So he's already saved you. You don't do good works to be saved. He's already saved you. You do good works because you're saved. God has built this into you. The same way the person who, who assembled the truck that I drove in this morning put the engine in my truck so that when I give it gas, it runs. God put faith in you. He put that in you so that you would do good works. And all that, you can't do good works unless you're saved because otherwise your sins are not being washed away. It's just the sinful nature. But he says something about those works, which God prepared in advance that we would walk in them, says the Greek. The Greek word walk in them usually means conduct our lives. So stop and think about that. The good work you're going to do tomorrow, God had planned for you to do before he said, let there be light. He planned your life to be this. And don't kid yourself. You are doing the greatest good work of all right now. God wants us to hear his word that he has died for our sins and saved us. And he wants us to believe in it. And so you have come in belief to once again be assured by that word and God has worked all that out for you in advance. So brothers and sisters in Christ, yes, God has made you alive and the purpose of that, obviously, you know, is to save you. It's also so that you would do good works, but don't put pressure on yourself. Don't be like, ooh, I better put together a checklist and make sure I'm doing good works today. If you want to know what a good work is, the Ten Commandments tell you that. But God's built it into your new man. You're connected to Christ. You'll produce that fruit. And now the Ten Commandments say, there's your good works. So the Ten Commandments are not a way to be saved. We don't do good works in order to be saved. We do them because we're saved. And so today we see you are alive together with Christ by grace. That's God's gift with authority. God's given you the keys. He's given you stewardship and he's given you authority to rule over your sinful nature, even though he gets his sucker punches in. And he's created all that for you in order that you do do good works. And the greatest work that you do do is trusting in him for salvation. Praise be to God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen.